Hi, everyone. Um, such a funny morning. Um, you know, many of you know both from Eric's introduction and just from knowing about the legend that is Mitch, um, about the highlights of his career. So uh, founding Lotus, developing Lotus 123, growing that company to 1,300 people, co-founding the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, but in this case, Sarah and Eric tasked us with a very specific conversation, which is how to build impact businesses with sort of diversity at their core. And I want to start just by taking that in two pieces. So what do we even mean when we're talking about an impact business in your mind? So first of all, thanks very much for having me. Um, I'm such a huge fan of Lean Startup that I think I actually asked if I could be here this time, and Eric and Sarah, seriously, we're, we're gracious about it. Impact. So the view we have is that all businesses have social impact. Some is negative, some is positive. And that's in distinction to a view that says, well, there's regular business, and then over here there's this weird category called impact businesses. It's the position that we take is we're interested in funding and supporting businesses that have positive social impact, that are in some definite kind of way making the world a better place. And we can talk about um, what methodology we use to, to do that so we're not just being kind of up in the air. But it really is fundamentally to say, look, business like every other human activity has impact on the people who work there, on the customers, on other stakeholders, on the environment, in every possible way. Let's focus on, po on the positive. So why don't you talk a little bit about that methodology? Because I think it is very difficult if you're just sort of hearing impact. Yeah. I suspect that a lot of people in this room think they're creating big impact businesses. What do you think of and how are you evaluating impact? So we invest in seed stage uh, tech startups, and we largely have a domestic focus. And the domestic is just because we have limited um, capacity. And what we found in terms of impact criteria, one size doesn't necessarily fit all. So for what we do, we're very interested in the concept of closing gaps gaps of access, gaps of opportunity in which some groups in society have fundamentally less than others. In other words, the playing field is not level. And we're interested in those businesses that are closing those gaps and doing it in ways that particularly help underrepresented groups. So this could be in a sector like education or health or financial inclusion. It could be uh, directed to low-income uh, communities of color, but it could also, for instance, be directed to closing gaps of access uh, for women in, uh, in, in the tech world. Do you want to give us an example from your portfolio? Sure. So um, in the financial inclusion area, we are investors, we are seed stage investors in a company called LendUp, who uh, subsequently funded by Google Ventures is doing very well. It is about taking on 
the payday lending industry head on. So for people who don't have uh, adequate FICO credit scores and who live paycheck to paycheck, their only alternative are these corner stores and payday lenders that are charging hundreds of percent of interest annually and they're in debt traps and it's, it's exploitative and, um, and it's a huge industry and LendUp is about a different alternative which is a mobile solution uh, and helps people rebuild uh, credit as they repay loans and uh, reduces the interest rates that they pay over a period of time. So we can look at, uh, when we think about well, what's the impact, the impact is actually helping people to be financially more secure, to be part of the mainstream, not to be exploited, to rebuild a credit history. Uh, I mean, that's in our impact bullseye. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs think about growing a company, making a lot of money, and then giving back to the world afterward. How did you think about that either when you were growing Lotus or as you think about it now as sort of an investor? Did you come to this impact sort of lens as an evolution or were you always thinking about it? Well, it has been a long evolution with many stages, but it definitely had its origins back at Lotus some 30 years ago. So my situation growing up was that I was a social outsider, not by virtue of class or race, but just by virtue of being super geeky at a time when it was completely uncool. Uh, and so I felt I was the least popular kid that ever went to the Freeport, Long Island public high schools, and I was an outsider even to the outsiders. When unexpectedly I found myself running this big public tech company with lots of employees and hundreds of millions in revenue, it occurred to me a worthy ambition was to make it be the kind of place that even someone like me would feel welcome at and included in. And I was fortunate that the person we hired to build Lotus's culture, uh, Frida Kapor Klein, who later became my wife, was brilliant, a dozen years later, not an office <laughs> romance. Seriously. Which was good, because she co-founded the first group in the US on sexual harassment in the, in, the, in, in, in the 1970s. But she brought um, these same ideas that basically of being a responsible company, of treating uh, employees well, of being inclusive in our hiring, of thinking about our impact on the community, and so we initiated a lot of things along those lines. On the investing side, I did a lot of angel investing over the decades, being very early, not just in PC software, but in streaming media and in uh, other things. And when we moved to California in 99, kind of Frida's world and my world organically began to merge. And this idea of focusing what was angel in uh, investing and now is a boutique venture firm around impact concepts uh, was something that has come in stages and I would say about three years ago we went all in on it. So tell us about some of the challenges of doing that. You know, one of the things 
um, that's come up in this conversation in general in the field around impact is that maybe it's sort of the worst of all worlds. There's a couple of years ago, um, Mark Andreessen took a famously contrarian view, uh, specifically at the time he was talking about B corporations, saying, um, you know, it's like a houseboat. It's not a great house and not a great boat. So how do you resolve the tensions with focusing on both of these things at the same time while you're trying to grow a business? Well, I would say a couple of things. So first, startups are hard. And the fact that Lotus, as startups went, was relatively easy led me to give 25 years of bad advice to entrepreneurs. So I, I apologize. But we should listen that. to you now. <laughs> well, you've got to make up. No, no, no. You have to make up your own mind about that. Um, but what I would say, and the reason I think lean principles are so important is because they're the best framework that I know of for creating a business. And it's like this silly mantra I say over and over again to teams. So the best thing you can do is as quickly as possible to build an actual product that actual people use and that actual people find valuable. And go read the book or take the seminars or, because it's, and, and once people get it, and I assume we're preaching to the converted here, it's just, it gives you such an unfair advantage over anybody who's doing a startup that doesn't kind of, that, that, that doesn't get that. So we're religious about that. We're also religious about, from the very outset, um, what's the impact? And we put a stake in the ground, and it's on our website, we have a reputation for it. And what I would say is it's actually been super useful for us because there are a lot of entrepreneurs who really want to do impact businesses, and they've gotten bad advice, not from me in this case, but someone else that says, don't talk about it to your funders because they're, well, maybe you don't talk about it to Mark, Mark Andreessen, although his partner, Ben Horowitz, invests in impact companies all the time because we're co-investors in, in several, so don't, you know, take what you read too, uh, too, too literally. There are a lot of people, founders, who want to do lean impact businesses, and that's been one of the most pleasant surprises. Look, the proof is going to be in the pudding. If the portfolio we build is strong and the economic outcomes are strong as well as the impact outcomes, that's going to help settle the argument. And so, and that's the way we prefer to do it. We love the results that uh, we're getting. We have some fabulous companies. We're in Class Dojo and, 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 and Clever in, in EdTech and um, Health Loop and a few things in health, multiple things in financial inclusion. We're in Pigeonly, which is offering low-cost phone calls to the incarcerated, which is another uh, racket. We've been successful raising syndicates on AngelList in addition to our own money. But, but the fact is, we're only going to know after there's a fair trial, and we want to judge by results. I would not want to, for instance, debate Mark Andreessen about the houseboat thing. I want to, I want to get... I want to get outcomes. Yeah. And that's actually kind of a, taking a lean approach to it, you know? So I, I, I sort of like that. But l let me also say one thing is that I believe that there are going to be some huge outcome companies, you know, tens of billions of, of uh, value or uh, market cap that will be impact businesses. And so I don't think we're just going for singles and doubles. We are going for some home runs. 
And when you say you see a home run, yeah. obviously we're yeah. talking about there's financial impact. Yes. But what kind of, where's the needle going to move? What's actually going to change? Well, I th so one thing that could change is uh, wholesale job creation and economic opportunity in a major sort of way. So if you want to take a case of a company which has mixed impact, let's talk about Uber for a minute. Mm -hmm. One of the fabulous things that Uber is doing is it will be creating, I think they said 2015, a million new jobs. And if you talk to people who drive for Uber or, or for that matter for Lyft and you ask them, well, is this a better job than what you, you know, if they were driving a taxi before. I mean, they, drivers generally love doing that because they make their own hours, pay is better, I mean, it's, and it's a more dignified kind of work. If you can start a business that creates a million new jobs, particularly for uh, low middle income, that's a huge impact win. Now, Uber is complicated, obviously, and we can talk about that if you want, so I'm not trying to say they are therefore unambiguously the big impact company because the culture you create, your, how you conduct your business, obviously also has lots of, of impact. So, but there's a big win in that. If you introduce a technology that revolutionizes a whole sector, empowering individuals and small businesses in ways that they hadn't before, and particularly if it uh, helps low and middle income uh, people, that would be a big deal. We're investors in a 3D printing company because that's the hypothesis mm -hmm. of what's gonna happen. Well, sort of Uber is a great yeah. example because you're sort of talking about this hyper growth moment could create a million jobs, yeah. just raise more than a billion dollars, but has also kind of come under fire yeah. for its culture. Yeah. You were talking about culture earlier, how you built it into Lotus yeah. from the very beginning. How do you build in good culture from the beginning when things are sort of moving rocket ship style? So let me also disclose, we are investors in Uber, just so people understand, seed stage, the very beginning. Um, it was done in 09, and as I said, we've been all in on impacts. So when we did the Uber investment, I was thinking about impact, but we weren't defining ourselves that way. And I've often asked myself, what would I do now if I saw that um, again? What we do now when we talk to entrepreneurs is we have a much more explicit set of conversations, and we're still learning to have those conversations. So for the last couple of years, we've asked everybody to do a social impact plan. Basically, it's an annex to their pitch deck that talks about what their social impact hypothesis is, how they're going to measure it, what they're going to be held accountable to. And we have just started asking uh, teams for a diversity plan. Okay, how are you going to hire? Who are you going to hire? Is your team going to look like the community that's being served? Um, how are you thinking about that? And we're weeding people out who, if they're not really committed to uh, building um, an inclusive workforce over time, it's not a good fit for us. And I say inclusive workforce over time because we are also realists. Most companies are started, you know, they're typically like two or three people who knew each other in college and they're going to be you know, very homogeneous at the beginning in terms of class, gender, ethnicity, and so on. And the first thing they want to do is they want to hire engineers, and hiring a diverse engineering workforce is very difficult. It's possible, but it takes time. We don't have quotas. We, 
you know, we talk about long-term goals, we look for commitment, we look for consistent progress, the same way we look at the economic progress of the company. I think this is my message, that impact isn't some other, like, coat of paint you try to paint, you know, your, your, you know, your, your artifact with. It's part and parcel of how to think about the business from the very beginning, part and parcel of all the conversations between uh, in investors and founders. Um, it should be coming up every time there's a meeting of the advisors or of the board in the same way that there are key, you know, performance measures around the economics of the business. I mean, it's really about baking it in. And that's the answer to the culture is you bake your culture in from the very uh, beginning. So you'll have to admit that a diversity and impact appendix in a pitch deck is actually pretty unusual. Totally. So tell us, yeah. like, what are the ways that people mess that up? Sort of when you oh. see these pitch decks and you're sort of like they're not taking it seriously yeah. or it's not actually baked in, how do you actually tell that? Because presumably someone would know what to write to make well, it seem like they actually look, cared it, about this stuff. I don't think in principle it's all that much different than the other part of the pitch. You develop an ear after a while for when people are telling you things that they think you want to hear versus things that they really believe. And we're willing to have lots of conversations and spend time on it. So we want to know, is the thinking rigorous? Is there any depth to it? Can they give examples of it? Or is it more sort of formulaic and, 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 and cliche and, 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 and superficial? And we think we can do a reasonably good job at it. By the way, we actually ask for the social impact plan kind of after we're already semi-serious about things. We don't want to make people do extra work and, you know, we want to use it as a, you know, as a tool to really help us make a decision and help entrepreneurs think, uh, you know, think through um, their business. So, I mean, if people are making it up, you can, you can just kind of tell. You don't last in the investing business if you can't. So you don't have to name a specific company, but have there been instances where you sort of have gotten it interested enough and you're excited about that part of it, and then you say, you know what, this is actually not really an impact of business at the end of the day? Yeah, we have in, a, in, in some cases. Really just not been able to get to the finish line. Mm -hmm. And we say there are things like, this is, you know, economically could be a very strong business, but we don't think it's a good fit for us and then we explain what we mean, not a fit. These are the things that really matter to us. This is what we want to work on. It seems like your interests are different and you know you should find investors whom you are aligned with because that is another cardinal principle, both for investors and for entrepreneurs. The idea that you should take money from somebody that has a very different set of values from you, you're, just, you're asking for trouble. So I want to ask a more yeah. foundational question yeah. because we're sort yeah. of talking about diversity yeah. um, and I think it's really easy to pay yeah. lip service to the value of yeah. diversity. Yeah. Why should we care about diversity? You know, and what do you mean by diversity? Okay, so I think it's interesting that that is indeed a relevant question in 2014. Mm -hmm. I hope the world of my children and grandchildren is such <clears throat> that in, I don't know, 2034, 2054, people look at that question the way we today look at the question of, you know, why is racial equality important? I mean, for God's sakes, 
The only reason we don't think it's important is because we're primitive barbarians. And our children and grandchildren are going to look back and go, how could you believe that stuff? How could you act that way? Now, I'm, I'm on record about this, so we'll, I probably won't be around, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, <clears throat> I could, there are several different, now to answer your question quickly. Thank you. Several different strands. So one, if you genuinely believe in equal opportunity, which is to say, if you're a good American or a good citizen of a country for which that's a core value, you ought to believe in diversity. I mean, genius and talent are evenly distributed by zip code. Opportunity is not. And so, uh, to ensure that everybody genuinely has an equal opportunity and to do those things that will maximize the diversity within your organization, sort of it's, there's a patriotic goal. Um, there are pragmatic goals. Uh, we're all fighting for scarce talent as we build our companies. And <clears throat> to understand that talent comes in different looking packages, and to understand how to get at real talent that doesn't look like the stereotype of what talent looks like actually confers competitive advantage in a very important way in being able to get more of the best talent sooner. Another pragmatic reason for many businesses in education, many consumer businesses, having a workforce that resembles the community being served is extremely important. Uh, the lived experience of the people around the table in your firm to the extent it bears directly on the value proposition you're putting out there, there's really no substitute for that. Simulation will only get you, will get you so far. So that's another pragmatic uh, reason for doing it. And I think the big companies, Google, when it put out its numbers about their lack of diversity in the workforce across all dimensions, I think came to the conclusion, as difficult as it was, they're going to be better off by being public about that because it gives them the opportunity to improve those numbers and they see it as a business uh, imperative. So. so one of the things I'm interested in is actually the gap between um, Thank you. Um, what you said yeah. that we should all know and believe because we are not barbarians yeah. and the numbers as they exist today. Yeah. So, so how did we, that happen? How did that happen and what yeah. are we going to do about it? Right. Great questions. So first is we're also no longer in an area where there in this industry there is a huge amount of overt discrimination and sure. racism. It's, it's not zero as leaked transcripts from things continue to reveal, but it, the, the main thing that happens are, is the operation of um, implicit or hidden bias. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but it turns out that the human brain is wired for preferential association. We, we like this better than we like that. And those preferences exercise themselves at an unconscious level dozens or hundreds of times a day. Um, and the, there is great research 
hundreds of studies now documenting how this, uh, how this operates. And, and in a way, the um, cultural stereotypes, stereotypes are the sort of thumbprint of the culture on our minds. So we don't even know what we're doing, but we wind up sort of preferring the familiar people who are sort of in our group. And the short path to doing something is to understand the role hidden bias plays in hiring and retention and decision-making and all aspects of a startup, and to take steps to mitigate it, because that's the good news is if you understand the behavioral neural mechanisms by which hidden bias operates, it's also possible to design interventions uh, to ameliorate it. And so Google has instituted uh, a mandatory uh, hidden bias training for all managers in the company. They've had that now for a while, and the companies are beginning to uh, take this idea seriously. And that would really be the sort of the single best thing to do. And then to rethink, <clears throat> so Frida has been into <clears throat> many of the high growth, high visibility startups, uh, Dropbox, uh, Twitter, Twilio, list of really more than a dozen. <clears throat> and it's been, and I've been privileged to be part of that, to watch as companies have started to take steps to rethink how they do recruiting, where they do their outreach, how they interview, actually finding as Eric has, oh, there's a great Eric story, which is um, Frida was at an unnamed company and said, they're talking about removing names and schools from resumes of people they wanted to hire. To avoid the bias that, one of the biases that arise is uh, in, in gender and racial bias, we disfavor, we, we, we like white, white male sounding names. Lots of, lots of research on this. And um, uh, somebody in this workshop asked, Frida, and Frida had mentioned that Eric had tweeted about this. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the best way to go about doing it? And Eric's tweet was, well, a black Sharpie usually is sufficient. So there are straightforward, dozens of straightforward little things that you can actually do. Nobody has written sort of the cookbook of this yet. It's an opportunity for somebody to do it. But I am enthusiastic that there are significant practical things that we can do. Can you give us another example, sort of from a startup's perspective, given that they are managing about a million things, they don't have Google's HR department, about what they are going to do to actually address this issue, given that they are start, they've started with their three homogenous people because they all went to college together, and now, according to you, they need to think differently about recruitment from a business perspective. Um, what do they do? Well, we typically have the conversation when companies are raising their seed, that means they're like two or three, but they're going to go to six, seven, eight, or ten. We talk about the technical positions and the non-technical positions, and we try to identify areas where it is easier or more likely that you'll be able to hire a more uh, diverse set of candidates. It's often in operations or you know customer support. Uh, Oftentimes, entrepreneurs, all they really need is some encouragement <laughs> to do this. We also, as a practical matter, can sometimes connect people to particular networks that 
of hiring or, 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 or pools of, of candidates. But um, uh, it's really in that, yeah, hiring up to the first 10 people, where instead of being reflexive and doing the easiest thing is to be thoughtful about uh, how do I assemble a broader candidate pool? So that's another rubric. Quotas, never. But the idea that you should not hire unless your candidate pool has some diversity, and then within that you hire whoever you want, that's a good intermediate step, and people find that, well, they can actually do that. So, so yeah. as an investor in yeah. being so public about yeah. these issues, yeah. I want to know how that's been received by co-investors, uh, do you feel like you're actually making a dent in speaking so publicly about this stuff? Is it changing? Well, I'll tell you what's changing and what isn't changing. And I, there is, in all likelihood, some amount of people going, you know, looking, looking at this stuff dismissively. And as I said, what the, the outcome will be judged by what we're actually able to do. My, career, which goes back 35 years now, is routinely uh, accompanied by dismissiveness in the early stages of whatever it is I'm excited about, whether it was personal computers in 1978 or the internet in 1993 when I made the first investment in any internet company, I think, which was UUNet, or streaming media a couple years later. Uh, so uh, dismissiveness, to the extent it exists, actually doesn't really bother me. Um, the best surprise has been the number and quality of impact-minded founding teams that have surfaced to us by virtue of our putting the stake in the ground and the fact that we have gotten in all sorts of deals precisely and only because of that. Entrepreneurs routinely say, we want Capor Capital in this to be a counterbalance to the other investors. So seems to be, you know, working well, and the, we, we, we love the companies, and the companies are doing well, and um, we're just, you know, all in on this, mm -hmm. and expect to be held accountable by the results that we produce. One of the things we found as investors is that we're seeing entrepreneurs who are actually sort of grateful yeah. for that lens, because they would like to do it, but yeah. feel like they don't have the luxury. Um, right. I want to sort of close with just asking you a more personal question because I have often imagined that you sort of could and should be doing, you know, anything. You could be on a beach somewhere right now instead of in the rain. Um, why do you care about this stuff? Ah. So I've asked myself that and if it weren't for the impact work, I'd much more likely be doing something else now. I mean, I like to stay busy. I'm not a just lie on the beach kind of person. But it's, I feel like it's, it is so interesting and it's so edgy and, and hard um, that, and I, I love a, a challenge, and it feels like it's more of a kind of legacy that I would like to leave behind that, you know, I feel like it's been a great, um, you know, career extension. And at a heart level, I go back to the kid that I was when I was 13, 14, 15, and just felt like there was no place for me in this world. And I did not feel good about that. And the idea that you could create businesses where the people who work there feel included and where 
it is making a positive difference in the world, I mean, that's as close to redemption as I'm aware that we can, you know, get on this planet, so. That's great, to yeah. redemption and leaving better legacies. Yes. Thank you very much, Mitch Kapoor, and uh, thanks to Thank the startup folks for having us.